In the English-speaking world, it's called the Golden Arches. In Spanish, Arcos Dorados. The Golden Arches are that familiar symbol of McDonald's restaurants. It comes from the original design of McDonald's drive-in restaurants, where two golden arches held up the roof. Today, it's one of the world's most recognized business logos. In Latin America and the Caribbean, Arcos Dorados is also the name of the world's largest independent McDonald's franchisee. Arcos Dorados was founded by my guest on this episode, Woods Staten. I asked Woods an important question that has been at the heart of my research. Can companies operating in industries like fast food prioritize purpose? Woods Staten says that while Arcos Dorados must give a customer what they want, Arcos Dorados is on a path towards purpose. It's a path that guides the company's journey towards environmental sustainability. The path proved critical as Woods led some 100,000 employees through the tremendous challenges of the COVID pandemic. The path inspires the company to lead by example with the hope of influencing consumer habits and small business practices towards the betterment of Latin America. Wood says his company's path to purpose is also a work in progress and not something they necessarily publicize. We have a recipe for the future, which includes water harvesting, recycling, making sure that our buildings are built in an ecologically responsible way. People know what the mission of the company is, but I think they see it in the little things that we do on a daily basis, be it the people they interact with, their bosses, or be it when they see the, the recycling of, of paper and they see products that come out, we, we inform, look, we have no more artificial flavors, no more, you know, artificial preservatives, you know, so it's a constant thing that you see, but you don't, you don't have a speech about it. We don't make a big deal out of it. We tell our shareholders, we tell governments what we're doing, but I don't think a lot of customers know that, that in many cases we're doing a lot of water harvesting. Uh, our employees do. Uh, I don't think a lot of customers know that we're doing with recycling or with taking old oil and, 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 and turning it into biodiesel. I don't think they know that. Maybe we should do a better job, but I think they need to know, but you also can't go around saying what a great person you are. I don't, it's not believable. And I don't think it is even you know, correct. Hello and welcome to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. I'm Ranjay Gulati, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. From a very young age, Wood Staten got a taste for operating businesses and leading others. His grandfather owned a massive Coca-Cola bottling operation based in Latin America. Woods got his first job there, working one summer at a Coke bottling plant. was carrying these 50 kilo bags of sugar into this big tank and, you know, mixing what they call simple syrup. And then they would add the, the magical potion that would make Coca-Cola. And I worked there for, for many months and I, I just realized how much the, the employees really appreciated my, my grandfather and my father. And so I realized that, that there's more than just, uh, there's a link between what you do and the people 
that you work with. And my, my hero has always been my, my grandfather. He, he was a very great entrepreneur. He started late in life as an entrepreneur. He was 50 when he started. And then when I joined the company after, after college, um, my, my mother came to me and said, well, I'm very disappointed you become a business person. I wanted you to stay, you know, doing psychology. You know, I was studying behavioral psychology. She sort of had this notion that business was not that great, you know. I mean, you were sort of mediocre if you went into business. And she was very much into uh, things like liberation theology in Latin America. And and she taught philosophy very much into Nietzsche and Kant. And business was just, you know, another world. <laughs> so I think part of it has been in my life has been trying to disprove her that you can you cannot do both things you can do both things you can be socially responsible and be a business person wood staffen's grandfather was the son of an alabama sharecropper in the 1920s his grandfather got a job with a company that in wood's words was selling a little fizzy drink grandfather ended up in colombia the fizzy drink became a smash hit and the family prospered. Well, he was one of the first people within the Coca-Cola system. And he, well, first of all, he was, a, he was from a sharecropper family in Alabama. And he went to Georgia Tech and he studied uh, industrial engineering. And he graduated when he was, I think, uh, 19. And uh, he then went to study theology and came to Brazil to work with the Methodist church and things. And his wife, my grandmother, got sick. They had to go back to the U.S., and that's when he went to work for Coca-Cola. And he started in Canada. He ended up being the head of Coca-Cola in Europe as it was starting. But these were all pioneering jobs. This was a little fizzy drink. This is in the, in the 20s and 30s that people didn't really know. So he was a pioneer in that sense. And then when he was 50, he got uh, passed up for a promotion. He was the head of Latin America. He got uh, passed over for a promotion to be the Coca-Cola vice president worldwide. And he went back to Alabama to a farm. And uh, one day these people from Colombia came and asked him if he could help them with their bottling plants in, in Bogota, Medellin, and, and Cali. And he said, yes, and I'd, I'd like to be a shareholder. So that's how he started. So he started you know, from a very low, not a low, but from a very basic position as a shareholder in Colombia. And he grew it to be uh, at the time, the world's largest Coca-Cola bottling uh, system in Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil. And uh, he was a very simple person. Didn't take himself seriously, didn't take his accomplishments seriously, and just did a lot for a lot of people and, and uh, gave them a lot of careers. And I just liked the way he, he thought. He was simple and very intelligent and very hardworking. Yeah, so I joined the company, and um, my grandfather had four children, so there were four limbs to our family tree. And so I go to work in Mexico and I started working there with a truck driver and learned the basics. I was there for a year, maybe three or four months as a truck driver's assistant, carrying cases and learning not to talk about politics or football with, with the customers. You might get them angry. And then I went to Brazil and I worked in Brazil and was then promoted to vice president of marketing for our Colombian operation. And by then my grandfather had died and my father had died, and there was turmoil in the family. The turmoil became jealousy that I was, I had progressed so much in the company, and I was a little bit at fault also. I was a little bit cocky and uh, maybe even arrogant. And so we came to sort of acrimonious uh, relationship, and uh, we left. I left, 
uh, the company. I went to see an um, uh, ex-boss of mine, and I had lunch with him. And he said, look, Woods, you know, why don't you quit being an employee? Why don't you try to do something yourself? You, you can probably do it, and you probably have fun doing it. And by the way, I know of a group of people who are trying to bring McDonald's to Colombia. They're looking for somebody to run it. Maybe you could do it. Why don't you talk to them? So my first job was try to get McDonald's into Colombia. And I also, there I failed miserably because the government did not allow us to remit funds. And they were killing judges and they were killing presidential candidates. And the company said, well, we're, we're really not interested in Colombia at this time. It was one of the worst epochs of, of Colombia. Like most successful entrepreneurs, Wood Staten didn't let failure derail or discourage him. He persevered. Now he finds himself at the helm of a large enterprise with operations spanning 20 countries and close to 100,000 employees. But as he built this organization, Woods combined what he learned from his grandfather with a moral sensibility from his mother that businesses need to be successful, but at the same time need to be a force for good in society. That companies are not separate from society and that they need to be deliberate about having a positive impact on the communities where they operate. An impact that goes beyond providing decent jobs and great products. Woods then tried to capture these goals by distilling them to a thing called purpose. I asked Wood Staten how that purpose radiates out to his large and diverse workforce. We're in 20 different countries, so it's very difficult to, to reach them all. We have values that we use as boundaries for the way we do business. You know, we have to deal with three languages, uh, basically Spanish, Portuguese, and, and French. But we, we try to make sure that people understand that it's a meritocracy, that they can go anywhere they want, they can see their their peers and their bosses and see that that's really true. We make sure that they understand that there's no room for discrimination, that it's an inclusive uh, system. And they see it because they have a lot of 50, 60% of the, of the managers, restaurant managers are women. Their purpose is that they, they can grow. And they can grow in a system where they see that we take care of the things like packaging, our policies for recycling, for, you know, for making sure that we have water um, a, a harvesting from our air conditioning units. So we talk about it. We, we let them all know about it constantly. And, you know, they, they are the front line of our, of our business with customers. So it's important that they know about it in case they're, they're asked by our customers. So it's not some big speech you're giving about we are a noble company trying to save the world. It's a whole bunch of things that you're doing that they get to observe and see for themselves. We do recycling of paper, right? And 50% of our paper is recycled from the kitchen back. Another 50% is from, the, is from the customer area. When you look at recycling programs in Latin America, actually, if you look at any big city or any small city in Latin America, they don't have good recycling systems. Why? Because people don't, segregate what is recyclable from what is organic. And what happens is that I think that we have a space here where if, if people see that they can do it in a McDonald's, you know, then they're going to go to their homes and say, well, why aren't we doing it at home? Why can they do it? And we're not doing that recycling at home. And we can act also as a sort of as an example for children 
adolescents to take back to their homes. So we don't have a big speech. We just basically do these little things. Small changes mean great things if you keep doing them. And that's what we expose. Arcos Dorados is big. It operates more than 2,000 restaurants and has annual revenues of more than $2.5 billion. When a big company has a clear and deep purpose, it focuses strategy making. It fosters relationships with customers. It engages with external stakeholders and it inspires employees. And as it is with many companies, Wood Staten says the mission at Arcos Dorados is evolving. It requires company leadership to make tough choices and difficult trade-offs. And as owners of a franchise, Arcos Dorados has to work within the guidelines of the larger McDonald's corporation. To be very honest with you, we're still working on the on what our deep purpose is from the point of view of having it you know, laid out. But I would say that um, it's about nourishment, right? It's about nourishing ourselves and giving nourishment, good nourishing, nourishment, good food to our to our customers, and also nourishing the societies or communities that we work with. The founder of McDonald's, when he when he started, he said, "Look, we would like to give back something to the communities that that give us our business. We want to give back something to them." So I think it's a little bit of that. It's being part of the communities. When you say giving back to the community, uh, what does that mean to you? You know, is it like uh, environment? Is it jobs? Is it good food? How do you think about that? Well, it's all of the above, actually. I mean, I think that we have about 95,000 employees in Latin America. Uh, 40% of our top executives started off as crew people. You know, they started off at the very bottom. They came as young kids, uh, got a job, part-time job. Uh, and because of that job, they were able to continue their education. And most of them now have MBAs, not, not from HBS, but they have MBAs from very good, reputable universities in Latin America. So that's one way we do. And I think that in doing so, what we've done is establish a meritocracy. Meritocracies are great. They also have their flaws. But I mean, they're, 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 I think they're the best way for society to develop. And I think we do that. So I see, but you know, uh, you'd also, one is jobs. I get the idea that you create this, ama- you know, really in, in that part of the world, amazing economic opportunities for employees to come and work for you. But you've also talked about the recipe for the future, that, you know, you want to really focus on single use. You've been pushing on single use plastic, saying we're not going to do that. You're recycling cooking oil. You want to conserve water. You're going after your supply chain. Um, that's part of your story as well. And why is that? Well, because I think, first of all, it's, it's the right thing to do. We live in these communities and we should provide good jobs. We live in these communities. We should provide good food. And we've been doing a lot of work as far as reducing or eliminating artificial colors, artificial flavors, reducing the, the amount of sodium, the amount of fat in our food. And also making sure that, that the providence of it is as ecologically beneficial as, we, as it can be. So, for instance, we've cut away meat, zero tolerance for meat that comes from deforested areas, and it's, it's monitored by a third party. 
and that's a, that's a big step forward, especially in Brazil. But it's I think it's it's we have the opportunity to do it, and it's good for society, and it's good for us. Customers, I think, appreciate that you're a part of of the solution. So it's it's a two way street. It's a two way street with a lot of different intersections. Deep purpose implies balancing the interest of various stakeholders, including shareholders, customers, employees, community, and the rest of the planet. Wood Satin says his restaurant chain looks for products and practices that emit less carbon into the atmosphere. But there are limits to how far out front a company can get of its diverse stakeholders. This is what I call the messy but essential pursuit of purpose. You have to give customers what they want. You know, you can't get away from that. I mean, I we've tried it with uh, plant-based hamburgers. People don't like it. I mean, beat us or or the competition. Now, do you have to have it on your menu? Yes. You have to have it on your menu because it's it signals what you want to do, even though you don't sell much of it. What we can do is try to sell more carbon zero beef. We can do a lot with our packaging still. There's a lot of runway there. With the building materials that we use, we can have a lot of uh, solar panels on our buildings and in our, in our, in our parking lots. There's a lot we can still do to make us more environmentally friendly. But from the point of view of food, it's a, it's a long, hard way of looking at it, yeah. Well, let me ask you a related question to that. Public health experts say fast food is a key contributor to poor health for people across the developed world. Can you be a purpose-filled company while also providing, you know, foods? Now, you might say it gives you pleasure. It's bringing you joy. And if you eat it in moderation and not every day, you'll be fine. How do you reconcile kind of uh, the product itself and its implications both for the customer and for the environment, you know, within the efforts you're trying to make? There's all kinds of fast foods, and it's been stigmatized since the 70s. In our case, we serve good food. I mean, we've had the, this issue of having junk food all since, since I can ever remember. But what we, we do is we serve good food fast. And what we serve is are things that you can buy in the supermarket and, and mothers buy in the supermarket. We have made sure that in the, in the process that we've reduced sodium and you know, fat and all the things you've mentioned. But I think today people also understand that mom's good home cooking probably has a lot more calories and a lot more fat and a lot of more, it's, it's probably not as good for you although it is mom's cooking, than, than we do. So we're also in many countries where we're saying to customers, if you're below the age of 12, you cannot eat this food because there's too many calories. So customers say, well, why, why do you do that? Well, because it's got too many calories, and we're, we've been asked to put that labeling on our, on our product, and that's the way it is. So I think quick-service food is has had a bad rap. It, it still has a bad rap. But I think we are serving people what they want. In addition to having a coherent sense of purpose, successful business leaders must have courage they must be able to face fear and take action. 
When the COVID pandemic hit, Arcos Dorados was able to keep most of its McDonald's drive through windows open, but it had to close virtually all of its dining rooms. Wood Staten says the well-being of employees and their communities was a first concern. Sometimes we could keep drive throughs open. It varied from country to country, a lot of confusion. But within all that confusion, there was one thing that was certain, which was that our sales had gone to hell, profits had come down. We really couldn't um, foretell the future. And um, the first thing we did is we took out as much credit as we could with our banks. And we actually took it so that we couldn't, we didn't have it taken away from us later on if in case somebody else needed it. So we, we indebted the company big time so we could go through the, the process. Those first six weeks were, were, were pretty terrible. But I knew that, you know, I knew that we would make it once we got to that, that cash flow stabilization. You know, we, we communicated once a week with everybody in the company. Um, and we talked about where we were. And my, my speech to everybody was, look, we're, we're in a boat crossing the stream. And we have to continue to cross the stream. But we're going to get there. And, um, you know, so don't, don't panic. We're, we're in this together. And we're going to make it. Then we went through a roller coaster of countries opening, closing, going back on their on their policies. But we then knew that we were. By then, we knew we were okay. That we we're going to make it, and we just have to wait until things normalize. But you know, there were so many other things you had to do. I mean, you had inventory, supply chain. You placed orders. There's perishable foods, and and you have no sales. And you want to, and you're saying to me that, you know, you are making payroll. You're not firing anybody. You're not laying anybody off. And no customers are coming in. How did you, at that moment, prioritize, like, okay, how are we going to do this? Like, look, and we, and that time there was no clear, clear idea of when things will open up again. We had a duty to these, these people working for us. Uh, we had a moral obligation. They, they, they put their trust in us, so we have to take care of them. We worked with uh, Walmart and we worked with Mercado Libre and we placed some of our employees with them. They were doing, you know, delivery. They needed people. So we said, look, why don't you go work for them temporarily? And then when things get back together, we'll, we'll, you can come back and work for us. But that was a minority. We started working with governments to help them give us breaks, tax breaks, and, and help uh, make payroll. And with, as far as supply chain, you know, we have great suppliers, Coca-Cola and, and others. And they were, they were patient with us. They were also going through their own problems. And they, they also knew that once we came out of it, we'd be, we would be okay. And I don't think any of us thought that we would not come out of it. So there was just a, a notion that we would make it, that we were just going to get to the other, end, the other side of the river and, and make it. I think one of the things that really has surprised me is how customers appreciated what we were doing for our employees. Obviously, we didn't do it for, for, to get their kudos, but you know, not firing anybody was a big deal. And it was very well appreciated by our customers. And that surprised me. And I think a lot of our success today is derived from these things that we did during the COVID to try to get and help everybody go through the, through the crisis. I think we're getting a lot of very good uh, grades from our customers for it.
what do you say to people who there are observers who say business's job is to stay in business get don't in, get involved in social issues and any other issues you see that with disney and the backlash against disney and other companies saying it's one thing to help your employees but now people are asking companies like what's your position on voting rights what's your position on abortion what's your position on other sensitive issues how do you demarcate for yourself like you know here's what we want to do yeah i mean if you take for instance package we have eliminated a, a lot of packaging from our, our plastic packaging from our uh, suite of products i think what happens there is that we did it because it also we had cost savings like for instance we t- we we took care of a whole bunch of straws you know and lids and we got rid of them because it was just a lot of plastic that we were putting in i think it was 1000 tons a year in our system huge and you had you know you had photographs of turtles with straws in their nasal passages so we said look let's get rid of it we'll just use it for drive through and we will not even offer it to customers well lo and behold the customers didn't really care they didn't they didn't notice that that was lacking so we were able to reduce costs in the process so there's a moral obligation but our obligation is to shareholders to make money but if we can make money and at the same time do these things then why not and then you know your question of of against abortion or other things that's not in our wheelhouse that's that's an issue that a hamburger flipper has no right to to question he might have their own thoughts but you know that's it so what's next for our arcos dorados what's next what's your vision for the future now for this organization i think we we will continue drawing i think we we have a bigger and bigger role uh in this space of restaurants and and in the environment and ESG i think the work the work we're doing in ESG is is the work of leaders in latin america and i think that's important you know a lot of the world's resources are in latin america be it cerrado or the amazonic basin uh all the way to peru mexico so this is a part of the world which is important and i think it's important that companies that have our footprint do a good part and i'd like for i'd like to see this company continue to be a leader in esg but not just the environmental part i think we have a very big issue with being leaders in the social the the s of esg and that is with being good employers being a meritocracy continuing to have these values and you know i think look a very simple thing is that when an employee comes to work for us they pay taxes it's something silly but the fact that they pay taxes brings them into society and being in society then you start being more involved with politics and how things are going and you don't start accepting uh cheap solutions and and um populist decisions and i think that's an important thing so what's next for woodstatton though what's your next chapter going to be once that you've decided that you've done your time uh with arcos dorados where are you headed No I'd like I'd like to be involved with looking at how academia can help bring together the different parties uh you know politicians social leaders businesses and basically business people are probably the best problem solvers out there and I think that problem solving skill and that analytical skill can be used in a lot of the issues that we have in the world and I I I'd like for on the one hand for our image to change we're not bad people we're good people and we have a lot to add but i also think that you know once business leaders 
can be in those circles, they can show and they can add a lot of value to politicians, especially looking at long-term. I don't think politicians anymore look at the long-term solution. I think they look at, you know, short-term solutions to get elected again. I mean, they're, if you will, they're, they're suffering the same thing we do on a quarterly basis. They do it on a four-year basis. And I, I think all the solutions require a lot more time. Do you think if your mother was here, she'd be, have changed her mind about businesses and business people and how they operate? Have you, do you think you've done a convincing enough job? Yeah, I think maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think, yeah, I think she'd be, she'd have hope. <laughs> Wood Staten is the founder and executive chairman of Arcos Dorados, the largest McDonald's restaurant chain in the world, with nearly 100,000 employees and more than 2,000 restaurants in Latin America and the Caribbean. Arcos Dorados is based in Montevideo, Uruguay. You've been listening to Deep Purpose, a podcast about courage and commitment in turbulent times. You can go to my website for more of my conversations with leaders in the business world navigating the 21st century business environment. You can also find out about my book titled Deep Purpose. That's deeppurpose.net. This podcast is produced by Stephen Smith with help from Lauren Modelski, Melissa Duncan, Craig McDonald, and John Bath. The theme music is by Gary Meister. I'm Ranjay Gulati.